Today we're looking at, we're going to continue in the Beatitudes, and we'll look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. And this is how it reads. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for a moment, and then uh, we'll, uh, we'll get started. God, we thank you just for this word. And, you know, maybe more, uh, uh, more than ever, this is a beatitude that we need. Uh, this is a beatitude that it feels like our culture and our city and our country needs. And so uh, I do pray, God, that you would not just inform us, but you would really shape us, uh, shape our hearts, shape our desires around what it really means to be a follower, to identify as a follower of Jesus uh, according to um, the characteristics that you display for us. And I pray for the churches in particular, uh, that churches would not uh, succumb to uh, the divisions and the polarizations that are happening, but churches would really be a beacon of love and unity and justice and mercy and uh, all kinds of things and peacemaking. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we are going through the Beatitudes with a couple of breaks in between. There's uh, one Beatitude left on persecution that uh, I'll preach in a couple of weeks, and then that'll lead us into Christmas. And then after Christmas, um, you know, I was reflecting, I, I think I want to actually preach through the book of Revelation. I think it's time. So uh, I'll, I'll probably be studying the book of Revelation and uh, preparing to preach through it. But uh, in these Beatitudes, you know, the one thing I'll say, I'm pretty sure every preacher in America probably has talked about at least two things recently. Uh, first, every preacher has probably said something about Jesus, right? You would hope because they're preaching and hopefully they're preaching something about the gospel. But second, I'm pretty sure every preacher has mentioned something about how divisive our country seems to be. Now, I could be wrong because I'm not in other parts of the country, but uh, maybe if we were to narrow the scope a little bit, and maybe if there is, uh, you know, everybody's online now, so if there was some kind of algorithm to analyze every sermon that was preached in the last month in New York, especially during a season of a very contentious election, I am pretty confident that the data would show that uh, preachers probably addressed something or said something about the divisiveness of the country. And, uh, you know, I understand why everybody's talking about it, because at least in our lifetime, it seems like the divisions that we are seeing uh, on the news or maybe even experiencing in uh, different kinds of relationships, uh, it does seem like things are pretty divisive right now. Uh, but, you know, if we try to zoom out a little bit and maybe take a broader perspective on history, I don't think divisiveness and conflict are anything all that new. Now, during the course of my life, I've talked to you know plenty of people who have had bad experiences in the church, and you know maybe they've been part of some kind of church split because there was some kind of disagreement. Or I've talked to people who are not necessarily believers, but they look at uh, all of the uh, Protestant denominations and they say, "What is so special about Christianity when there are so many divisions?" And my response to that is usually to say, well, I think division is the default disposition of human beings in general. There is actually division everywhere. Uh, even every faith has different kinds of divisions. Within Islam, you have the Sunnis, the, the Shiites, the, um, right? Within Orthodox Judaism, you have conservative Jews and you have Reformed Jews. 
nationality, you have Orthodox Jews, you have all these division in politics, you have division among classes, you have division among racial groups, you have division within those racial groups, you have division within families. And even though things seem pretty divisive in our country, if you look at the history of just the U.S., the U.S. has had deep divisions in its history as well uh, in the Civil War and also taking place during the Vietnam War. And when you look at human nature, divisiveness is not something that should ultimately surprise us. If anything, unity and peace is the miracle, right? Unity and peace is what should be surprising to us. And I think that's actually the miracle of the gospel, because if you look at what God did in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ from a certain perspective, you can say that what Jesus did was he came to bring peace uh, along both the vertical dimension and the horizontal dimension. That's, I think, what the book of Ephesians is essentially about. Ephesians 2, 13 to 14 says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down his flesh, in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. And so here, Paul is talking about the division between us and God, and he's saying that's essentially what Jesus is doing in the work of the cross. He is breaking down these dividing walls of hostility. He is bringing peace, and he is making us one. And therefore, in Christ, God has reconciled us to himself so that there would be peace and unity between a holy God and unholy sinners who were once alienated from God. But the gospel doesn't just end there with this vertical reconciliation, but that vertical reconciliation necessarily impacts our horizontal relationships. And that's what the second half of the book of Ephesians is about when Paul talks about Jew-Gentile relationships, or he talks about husband-wife relationships, or he talks about children-parent relationships, or master-bond-servant relationships. The peace of Christ that reconciles you to God, it is meant to extend into all of your relationships, and therefore, the power of the gospel is that it brings peace. It brings greater unity. Now, as divided as the country feels, that's actually not what is concerning. The concern is when the people of God contribute to that division rather than contributing to its peace. And I think most of you know that, um, uh, you know, last week I was on this, I, I went on just a personal retreat uh, to spend some extended time in prayer and some personal worship and also to do some work from school. And, you know, by the way, which is ironically probably the safest thing to do these days as uh, the cases of COVID start to rise. And I was hoping to read some scripture uh, and I asked some people to pray for me about this, but uh, I wanted to kind of recapture the joy and the delight of being in God's word uh, again. And so I was reading scripture and I was trying to receive it as food for my soul rather than just thinking about productivity and output and what uh, I can preach and share. And, um, you know, at prayer meeting on Wednesday, uh, I shared this passage um, from Isaiah 58, and it's a passage that I think God has been using to really speak to me in uh, multiple ways. And it was a passage that I read this past weekend, and it spoke to my heart. And in that chapter, you know, the people of God, they are being rebuked for these performative acts of religiosity. They are fasting, but they're not fasting in a way uh, of worship that is genuine to the Lord. Uh, in the middle of that fasting, they are quarreling and they're fighting, they're oppressing the weak, they're neglecting the poor. And, uh, you know, I forgot I said this at the beginning of the pandemic, but it came back to me a few weeks ago. 
But I remember I said, I thought the pandemic was going to be apocalyptic, not in the sense of how people usually understand apocalyptic as associated with the end times, but uh, the root of the Greek word is revelatory. So I thought the pandemic would reveal a lot of things about the church, and it would reveal a lot of things about our church, and it would show us how much of our faith is uh, not about the Lord, how much of our faith is maybe about social bonds, or how much of our faith is, is about being performative and doing performative acts of religiosity. And I do think on a wider scale, it is showing a lot of cracks in American Christianity and its marriage to celebrity culture. And so I don't think this is going to be an easy season for churches, but there is an encouraging part to Isaiah 58 where it basically says this, you know, if you start to care for the poor, if you start to let the oppressed go free, if you start to honor the Sabbath, and God says, your light will rise in the darkness and your gloom will be as the noonday. It says, your bones will be made strong. Your garden will be watered. Your foundations will be rebuilt. But you know what? All that performative stuff, all the performative elements of faith have to be dissolved and has to be replaced with this genuine heart for God that is willing to obey and do the things that God is commanding us to do. And so related to this beatitude, if you're not trying to make peace, but instead you're being divisive, if you're burning bridges, if you're cutting out everybody who disagrees with you or offends you, then you might be satisfied with a, a shallow faith or performance, but there is no light in that kind of faith. There is no flourishing garden. Uh, all you have are these weak bones and a weak foundation, but God promises and offers something better. God can strengthen weak bones. God can rebuild weak foundations, but it starts Let's pray for the church because that is what we're doing. Right? We're praying through Jesus' seven letters to the seven churches, and many of them include rebukes to the church, and we're going to repent about some of those rebukes. But whatever brokenness God is revealing and will reveal in the people of God, there's always hope for the church because ultimately the church is not just a human institution. As Paul says in Ephesians 3, the church is the manifold wisdom of God. Why would God use a group of weak, broken people to manifest his wisdom? Uh, you know, it, it doesn't comport with worldly wisdom, but that's the pattern of what God does. That's why God chose Israel on the power of God and the strength of God and the graciousness of God, which is ultimately what the function of a church as a lampstand is meant to do. And so Jesus would talk about that after uh, the Beatitudes, after this section of the Beatitudes, he's going to talk about being light of the world. And so what does it mean to then to be a peacemaker? As with all things, there are counterfeit versions of peace and Satan uses counterfeit versions of all kinds of things to subvert the will of God. I think the counterfeit version of peace in our culture is this. Uh, many of us are satisfied with um, being just a simply, uh, simply a lack of conflict. As long as there is no conflict in my life, be peace. To enter our lives, uh, we can react in all kinds of ways that are not necessarily glorifying to God. Um, 
when conflict enters our lives, maybe we can cut out the person who is the source of that conflict. And we say, okay, as long as I cut this person out, then there's peace. But that is a counterfeit form of peace, friends. You know, there's a book called uh, The Peacemaker by this guy named Ken Sandy that I had to read back in seminary. And I was looking for it again uh, for the sermon, but I think I gave that book away. Uh, so I couldn't find it. But from that book, I remember it had like this graphic and uh, you can you can probably find it online. But uh, this graphic, it kind of outlined all these unhealthy responses to conflict. And so it said there's these escape responses uh, or it calls it peace faking responses where you flee or you deny or you avoid conflict. And then on the other side of the scale, you have like these attack responses or the peace breaking responses, which is to, you know, slander or assault or litigate maybe in some situations. And then in the middle, it had like these peacemaking responses where you can forgive and you can reconcile, you can seek accountability, you can seek mediation amongst other kinds of things. And <clears throat> I think a lot of us probably fall in like those right edge categories where we are peace fakers or peace breakers. And in our response to conflict, uh, we do maybe oftentimes one of those two things, which I can understand because fear or anger, it can grip our hearts so tightly that we don't respond to conflict by making peace. We're driven by the fear in our hearts, so we don't engage it. Or we're driven by the anger in our hearts, so we don't seek peace. But God calls us to be peacemakers. Why? Because his gospel has not only demonstrated what making peace looks like, but it also has shown us what it feels like to have uh, to be at peace with God. All right, this is going to sound like a cheesy example, but as a as a person who watched a lot of TV sitcoms in the '90s, this is what came to my mind. Uh, so I'm going to use it. Uh, you know, on HBO, they had this reunion special for the cast of The Fresh Prince of Bel Air. Uh, I don't know how many of you watched that show, but it was a hilarious show. I loved it. And even now, watching scenes from that show, it, it literally makes me laugh out loud, uh, which I don't always do. But watching some scenes of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, I actually laugh out loud, which tells you it's a really classic sitcom in the scheme of American sitcoms. Anyway, uh, you know, if you saw the show, you know, in the middle of, I think it was like in season three or something, between season two and three, uh, you know, the character who played the aunt, Aunt Viv, uh, the actress changed. And the reason why there was a change in the actress was because apparently uh, there was some kind of conflict that took place between the actress, uh, Janet Hubert and Will Smith. And so they had this big conflict. I think it was in public. They said some pretty hurtful and hateful things to one another through the press. There was a lot of bitterness uh, and they hadn't spoken for probably almost 30 years. But for this reunion show, uh, they finally got together, they met to talk about what happened, they talked about the pain it caused, and eventually they reconciled. Now, uh, you know, there's a little side of me that's a little bit skeptical, because like when you film those kinds of things, instead of doing it in private, I guess I question like how genuine it is, but if it was genuine, uh, it, it really is a touching picture of the restorative power of reconciliation and the power of peace. And you know, it gives you a lot of positive feelings within you. And uh, I think, you know, to me, it looked genuine and there's kind of like this weight that's upon your shoulders when you're in conflict with somebody. And when you do the hard work of uh, reconciliation and you do the hard work of making peace, I think there's a lightness that uh, starts to be lifted. And I think, you know, you see it in that reunion show between uh, those two actors. Now, I wonder if, 
right? That is at least part of why Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. The way of making peace is ultimately a life of blessing, right? It's supposed to be a good thing. It's supposed to, I think, also feel good. Why? What's the alternative? The alternative is you have bitterness, right? You have that, that weight on your shoulder that I was talking about. You have isolation. You burn bridges. You ruin relationships. You have a hardened heart or you have a heavy heart or a heavy soul. There is blessing in making peace. And if you are a believer, that you of all people should know the power and the beauty of reconciliation because God initiated that process with you. Now, I don't want to overly romanticize this because, and, you know, sometimes that's what people do because we should also recognize it takes an incredible amount of work to get there, right? The work of reconciliation is by no means easy and it takes a lot of pain, takes a lot of blood, sweat, and tears to get there. But it should because it also took, in a literal way, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears for Jesus when he brought reconciliation to us through the cross, right? So if you believe in the gospel, you of all people should know the incredible amount of work and humility and sacrifice that it takes to do the work of making peace because that's what God himself did in the person of Jesus Christ to make peace with us. But you of all people should also know it is worth it. It is worth it. Now, as with the other Beatitudes, there's a second part that functions uh, in this verse uh, as a mixture of maybe comfort and promise. And uh, here the second clause says, for they shall be called sons of God, right? Blessed are the peacemakers. And then the second clause, for they shall be called sons of God. And I always feel like I have to mention this when you see the phrase sons of God, because, um, you know, it, it, it can... It's a gendered way of, uh, uh, of saying it, but it's not a phrase that is meant to be exclusive to, uh, to females because in the, the culture of the ancient world, to be identified as a son uh, indicates something about status, the status of a person. And therefore, if you are the son of a certain person, uh, it means that you are associated with uh, you know, that person. So if that person's honorable and you are a son of that honorable person, then you also share in that status of honor. And I think that's the illustration of what it's meant to communicate, whether, um, whether uh, male or female. Uh, God is going to give us this status and allow us to be sons of God in the sense of sharing in the status. Now, I don't know if we have an English equivalent in, uh, in our language, except in the pejorative sense. So, um, you know, if someone says you're, the, you're a son of, you know, a dog, then it's an insult because a dog is of lower status. Uh, but if someone says you are the son of, and who, I don't know who would be considered full of honor in our culture. Uh, if you, maybe if you're the son of a, an entrepreneur or inventor or military hero or something like that, or whatever the equivalent is in our culture, if you are the son of that person, it's a statement of honor. And so when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God, it is a statement of honor. Now, that's also, you should know, a really unique expression in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, you have language of sonship in, you know, Paul's letters, for example, but Matthew usually reserves that title, Son of God, for Jesus himself. And what this beatitude says is that those who respond 
and receive the peace of God through the cross and respond to that by becoming peacemakers, there is a sense in which you will be sharing in the status as a son of God. And, you know, by virtue of our union with Christ, uh, there is a sense we, we share in the status of Jesus himself. Now, if you spend any amount of time reflecting on your own uh, inability to make peace and conflict, and I guess my guess would be close to 100% of people probably have some kind of struggle or issue with making peace and conflict. Uh, I think for a lot of us, what we'll probably find is at the root of some of our dysfunction in terms of making peace, uh, what we'll probably find is shame, right? Some element of shame. Uh, when you don't respond well to being disrespected or when you don't respond well to being rejected or insulted or offended, uh, you might find the emotional root of that is because of shame, right? Shame is a powerful force. And therefore, really, to, in order to deal with your struggle and to make peace, you have to dig deep and get into your sense of shame, which is something that we easily bury under all of these defense mechanisms and coping mechanisms. And, you know, a good therapist can help you uncover your shame, but I think only God can help us really deal with our shame at a deep root level. How? First, he covers us, right? He covers our nakedness. And hey, providentially also something Miss Natalia talked about today to the kids, right? First, God covers our nakedness with the righteousness of Christ. And that's really important to know. But it doesn't, doesn't just end with covering. Second, God actually gives us a position of honor. So it's not just covering shame, but now he makes us honorable because he makes us sons of God. And when the Holy Spirit really makes that a reality for us, I do believe that we will then take giant leaps forward towards becoming peacemakers. And what does the world need? More peacemakers. And who does God call upon to be peacemakers? The church, right? Believers. And what does God give to become peacemakers? He gave us Christ, right? He gave us reconciliation in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. And therefore, we are equipped to become peacemakers. He gave us honor as sons of God. And therefore, we are equipped to deal with our own dysfunction and become peacemakers. So friends, uh, Let's follow Jesus and let's make peace in a world that is so divisive. The world needs it. And uh, going back to a sermon series, uh, I don't know when, but through 1 John and what Jesus says in the Gospel of John, the world's going to know the love of Christ uh, through the love that the church demonstrates. And so let's put on love and let's make peace because that is God's will uh, for us. Let's pray together. God, we thank you. Uh, for Jesus, and we thank you that uh, he himself is our peace, that he is the Prince of Peace, and he has come to bring peace. Um, and there, there is a sense where that is, you know, objectively true, that we have unity because of Christ, that those who are in Christ, we, um, we are one, because Jesus himself has made us one. But there's also a sense in which maybe that's not true, uh, true in uh, our life experience and it hasn't been realized yet in what we see and what we do 
And so, God, we pray that you would bring us closer to that objective reality uh, of, of unity and of oneness. And I pray, God, that we wouldn't be a people that contributes to uh, the divisiveness, to the unnecessary divisiveness um, that we see in culture and things like maybe technology or media or uh, loneliness perpetuates, but we would be a people who are so secure in our belonging to the family of God, secure in the position of honor that we've been given, not because we deserve it, but because of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, to be able to become peacemakers. And we pray, God, that the world, this would be an opportunity for the church to rise up and for the world to see uh, not the church or the goodness of the church, but the power of the gospel and the power of the reconciliation that you have brought uh, to us, your bride. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.